Thanks for tuning in to Listen Up, People, a podcast of the USC Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work. I'm Dr. T. Fitzgerald, clinical associate professor. Today, we're going to broach a subject in this episode that often gets overlooked between the ideas of diversity and inclusion. What is it? It's equity. Equity is an issue that has been ongoing fight in this country for pretty much its entire existence mostly due to misunderstandings of what true equity entails. As Aretha Franklin said, the waters do run deep. At the heart of human rights, at the heart of civil rights, lies equity. Equity entails respecting one another. It's also about opportunities that are available to some but not others. It's about discrimination, unconscious and conscious. It's about keeping that wall up, one group at the apex while the others struggle to swim in the waters below. Today, we're going to demonstrate and deconstruct what equity truly is. I have two amazing colleagues joining me to share their personal and professional experiences. Dr. Gabriel Crenshaw, clinical assistant professor, psychologist, radio and TV personality, creator of the digital media program, Mental Minute with Dr. Gabe, an all around vanguard on this subject. And Esther Lim, adjunct lecturer, expert in advocacy, reformation of the criminal justice system, serving as director of the jails project for the ACLU of Southern California and sits on the LA County Sheriff's Gender Responsive Advisory Board. Welcome. Thank you very much. To start us off, would one of you like to begin to discuss, how do you define equity? So, you know, when I was preparing for this podcast and also talking to some of my friends and activists kind of in this field, and when I was thinking of equity, I was thinking about just equality in general, right? Uh, Making sure that things are fair, to ensure that things are equal, people have an equal opportunity, you know, to resources, even to justice, given the work that I'm in and the field that I'm in. You know, I think this is a very interesting topic because, you know, we already do see a lot of communities who are treated unequally due to discrimination and intolerance. Could you give some examples? I will say the communities that I work with are people who are incarcerated. And when we look at the incarceration system and the carceral system, you know, here in L.A. County, there's 17,000 people who are incarcerated and 80% of them are black and brown. But when we look at and really dissect the carceral system, we see structures and systems that are based in racism and inequality and discrimination. And that's just one population. You see inequality, not just, you know, when we traditionally think of inequality, like, you know, people and communities and so forth, but we also see inequalities in systems and the way those resources are distributed or not distributed. Dr. Crenshaw, how would you describe the equity and how do you maybe view it in terms of differences between diversity and inclusion? Because sometimes it seems in this discussion today, it's used interchangeably, mm-hmm. equity, diversity, inclusion, and I think a lot of our professionals or our peers have it mixed up. The idea that the social sciences are sort of leading this discussion and opening, you know, this new pathway right now uh, for discussion, I think is critically important because arguably we had a lot to do uh, with the mess that we see right now. Psychiatry, psychology, 
behavioral and social sciences. That includes social work. And I think when we talk about diversity, of course, I mean, everybody knows when we're talking about diversity, we're talking about differences. We're talking about differences in, in gender. We're talking about differences in race. We're talking about differences in culture. What we're saying is, is that the dominant social structure, the westernized thought system, does no longer works here. And I think perhaps that's how some westernized people view it, that it no longer works, that you've got to include these other people, and we've got to sit them around this table. They didn't have anything to do with building the table. They didn't have anything to do with the chairs or sitting on. You know, they just get to come in after we've done all the work. And that's just a real silly notion. I think the Society of Human Resource Management sort of deals with the notion of diversity. We have a pretty good definition of what it is, and it's just really looking at people, the differences, bringing unlike minds together for a common good, that in fact some of the best ideas really will come from a heterogeneity of ideas as opposed to this sort of homogenous way. Is that a word? Homo, homo, homo it's like, homogenous. same. Homogenous, thank you. I really do have a thank doctorate. Thank you, Esther. <laughs> See, that's why they don't want us at the table, baby. <laughs> but anyway, when we talk about inclusion, now let's talk about that. Embracing the differences, but not only embracing them, but including them, allowing them to feel welcome, that they are an equal part of the, of the puzzle, that they share an equal part of the pie, that they're not there for lip service. They're respected, they're supported, and they're valued in the exact same way that the traditionalized people have been there all along. Because diversity is more than just people of color sitting around the table. It's about diversity being meaningful and not just colorful. And when I say color, I don't just mean color. I'm also including women, I'm including people with disabilities, of course, gay and lesbian and the LGBTQ community. I think that's really what inclusion is about that you're not being tolerated, that it is full-on acceptance, which, first of all, is a silly notion when I think about it, because who are you to accept me? You are human just like me. But if we understand, and we'll probably talk about this later, the etiology, the historical implications of racism in this country, then there is a, there is a clear line of demarcation for why it's so hard for people to tap into diversity, allow it, embrace it, feel comfortable with it, and then include it with equitable distribution for everyone. That's kind of where I am. Well, you touched on a, a number of issues. One, you talk about the whole idea of not only having people at the table, but having equity in terms of their opinions and their value and um, having them be a part of the decision-making. If we're looking at, we're touted as the profession that is all about equity, all about fighting injustice, all about... Um, fighting on all fronts. Mm -hmm. But it seems from what you're saying, and also from what I've observed myself, is that we pick and choose. If that's the case, why has that been so? And what do we need to do in order to meet the challenges of the 21st century, especially with our current our current administration and their approach to issues around equity? I don't see it as like, you know, equity versus inclusion, diversity. I kind of think of, you know, diversion or diversion. Diversity. Diversity and inclusion as tools, you know, to get to equity. Mm -hmm. I agree that I think there's, you know, that we just don't want to say, oh, this room is too white. We need a couple black people and some mm -hmm. Asian people and whatever to you know, fill some quota. But if our leadership, you know, looks like mainstream, then so are the ideas and the issues that we pick. How do we get there? If we're talking about leadership. You know, I was having a conversation with some of my friends in preparation for this, and they brought up this idea of allyship versus accomplice 
ship, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Allyship yeah, before accompliceship. And we think of the word accomplice as something very pejorative, mm-hmm. right? I think of you know, crime, right? Like you're complicit in something illegal, right? And when I was, you know, looking this up, we have a lot of allies, meaning that, you know, they, they're, by, you know, there's, they're standing on the sideline, they're rooting us, you know, rooting the movement on, but they're not there, you know, side by side dismantling structures that exist. You know, these issues that we're seeing with this administration, they're not new issues, right? right? This is issues that have been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. I think, though, what might be different is that we have more people who are more cognitive or you know just like cogent about what's happening but they are still afraid to get in there how many marches have we had since the administration has come in and that i think is the allyship that i talk about the women's march Mm -hmm. you know just the march against the administration march against uh or for gun gun control gun control right lives matter i've been in a lot of those marches as a participant as a legal observer and we come out in thousands, right? We hit record numbers when we're talking about these popular marches. However, when we talk about marches that may be a little bit more controversial mm-hmm. or unpopular, and I will say Black Lives Matter I marches. Agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. There, I mean, where are the numbers? You know, we see a lot of I like the Black Lives Matter tweets and, oh, you know, hashtag Trayvon Martin, you know, stuff like that. We see a lot of tweets, and that is what I consider allyship. Accompliceship is, you know, are they willing to, you know, be in that march with you? Are they willing to get arrested with you? Are they willing to lay their bodies on the line on behalf of the very communities that we are advocating for? That's the thing. Everybody knows when you say minority, people think black and brown. And what I start, what I've started doing is I'll, when I'm in, in, in a room, you know, with a mixed group or, or Americans, I will start to ask white Americans, where are your European roots? Because you are not American, right? The indigenous people, <laughs> that wouldn't be you. So where are your European roots? As each, as each European group came over here, they didn't initially come over here in the, in the face of Caucasian. They came over here as Irish Catholic and, and as Jews and, and as Italians. And the Irish, when they got here, they just ransacked New York. Like, it is really true. I don't, we act like this didn't exist. They were the ghetto. Ghetto comes from where? We know, but nobody really says anything. All of a sudden, everything that is negative and all the inferiority is ascribed to black people, mm-hmm. African descent people. But is it any wonder if we go all the way back to Wilhelm Bunk in the early 1800s, the father of, uh, of psychology? And what did he have to say? His whole thing about this notion, the, the psyche comes from the Greek word, the study of the soul. But you couldn't, you could not measure. There was no empirical value associated with the soul. So you have to study and measure behaviors. And then finally, when you can remove the soul of man, the essential humanity of man, what do you end up with? You end up with people who are no more than genes and chromosomes and chemicals. You can get them, you can train them like a dog to salivate. Interestingly enough, Ivan Pavlov was a disciple and student of Wilhelm Bont, and that ushers in eugenics with Galton. And next thing you know, you got Herbert Spencer talking about survival of the fittest, which is really Darwin with natural selection. And before you knew it, what, what did we have? We had to get rid of the undesirables, right? The inferior people so that we could have a great superior race. And that right there is historical implications that we are still dealing with in modern day racism and contemporary. 
Well, I'd like to push back to my original idea of what can we be doing. If you are tired, and I'm tired as well, of talking about it, and we teach, why don't we have classes about or teaching students how to mobilize, how to do grassroots marches, how to uh, use technology today to create movements? Same way of addressing the issues around the history of these professions and how they have affected us in modern times. Why aren't we doing this? We don't see organizing as worthwhile. We label that as, you know, very grassroots. Um, we haven't elevated it. We shouldn't think of organizing as a side hustle, you know? Organizing and galvanizing and outreach needs to be like interwoven into our work. If you're not within the quote unquote majority, which I hate using that majority and minority, because that automatically bespeaks a lack of, of humanness to me, humanity. Um, I think everybody is in the majority, and I think that's what the majority is afraid of, because to me, I know it comes down to numbers, but that's just semantics, and we all know it. Um, and that's the thing. I think calling out what we know for sure is a better way to go, but what comes with that are risks that a lot of people, rightly so, are not willing to necessarily take. You see, we can march down the street and sing Negro spirituals and sing Hispanic spirituals no one sings and Negro spirituals anymore. Well, we shall overcome or, you know, whatever it okay. feels like that. I get you. I get you. When they came to this country, no taxation without representation. Did they sing songs, you know, saying, you know, we shall overcome? No, they came and just debacled. They came and took over by force. And when this country decided whether or not we're going to keep slavery or whether or not it's good for the union, it fought against itself. The enemy was from within. And so you think that people are just going to go, you know what? Oh, my God. Women, gays, lesbians, transgendered, people with disabilities, and every other marginalized group here. We screwed over on you guys. We just screwed you up. And you know what? We're going to spend the rest of our majority lives just trying to make it up to you. It is not going to happen. There is absolutely no problem with marching and having all these different events. You can have whatever you want as long as the power structure doesn't change. I'm going to have to push back slightly on that. As much as I was cr being critical of marches and, and sticking them in the allyship box, mm -hmm. we have seen, you know, they're calling, you know, since the administration has taken place, we have been calling these years the year of the women. Take the E and put an X in there. Year of the Women, because we have seen an increase in women running for politics. And I think part of that was seeing the visit, you know, seeing things that were usually invisible, visible, right? And that comes with the Me Too and the Time's Up movement. Um, but we are seeing an increase in women running and wanting to be represented in, you know, in Congress, whether it's local or federal. And I think part of that had to do with this, you know, with this movement that we're talking about. I think people, you know, are just frustrated at maybe just marching and saying, what else can we do? What else can we do? And now there are these opportunities. We talk about equity. There are a lot of these nonprofits and advisory kind of, you know, organizations that are showing women, this is what steps you need to take to run. When we are talking about, you know, wage inequality, we're talking about, you know, attacks on you know, um, reproductive justice, you know, access to abortion, even the, you know, equal rights amendment, right? We have all of these attacks. And finally, we have women saying, I'm so tired of this. I'm going to run because maybe if we have more women at the table, we will be able to create the next table. 
you know, create those chairs and so forth and, you know, make the changes that, you know, that we've been marching about. Maybe we might see, you know, no more attacks on Roe v. Wade. You know, maybe we'll see equality in the wages. Maybe we'll actually see, you know, equity when we talk about women and we talk about, you know, other, other, other marginalized groups. So much of this is just, you know, shedding more sunlight or more, you know, more light on these issues that have been minimized or just, you know, just brushed aside because of yeah, who's you know, in power. But I, but I, disagree. I, I agree, but I disagree. It's like nothing needs to be, no more light needs to be shed on inequality. Everybody knows this. That's the thing. See, that's the, it's like, it, to me, it's, 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 um, it's synonymous with the rape victim. She's the one that was raped, and she's got to get on the witness stand and endure all of the questions about her sex life, what she was wearing, etc. The perpetrator, nobody ever asked the perpetrator, were you wearing that the night you raped her? Do you always stay out at 1 o'clock in the morning? The onus is always on the, it's always on the victim, and that is by design. You see, when it comes to pick something, women's wages, it's not like you need to, there needs to be a march. The men who are in place, that are doing it, they already know it's wrong. They already know it's wrong. That's a stroke of a pen. That's just adding more zeros on the paycheck. That does not take an act of Congress. What it takes is legislating people's hearts, but you can't do that. And that is why we see the, the stagnant growth, a blip on the screen and then it's gone because attention is drawn to it. But you notice how essentially it never really moves exponentially. And that's because it's by design. There is no veil of ignorance here. Everybody knows, including the perpetrator. But if I can get away with it, I'm going to. To me, it's a matter of the heart. And I think that's been the issue. You can't legislate that. And I think all the foot soldiers become utterly and completely frustrated by design to do what? Wear you out so that eventually you do what? You just take a break and you die. And not a lot has changed. Now, you bequeath this fight to your children. Meanwhile... Over here in the majority grade section of everything, they've got some stuff going on with their kids too, and it's business as usual, and they see the benefits of it all, and nothing really changes. They get past the guilt, and they keep right on. Well, I would agree and disagree. I, I feel that you're right. We have a system that's been put in place before the psychologist that you even mentioned. You needed a system put into place in order to legitimize the mistreatment of, of groups of people that you saw as the other. But you talk about this idea of legislating the heart. The great Derek Bell talks about this idea. The only reason he agrees with you, he would agree if followers of his, of, of his would agree, you can't. The only way you can get things to change for those who are marginalized in terms of equity would be to have the other group, the majority has to find it interests them that they get some value out right. of it. So the whole idea of the white convergence theory, every legislation that has been passed from Roe v. Wade to Brown versus Board of Education has been shown. It wasn't out of the heart. It wasn't out of the kindness of those in power. It was because they were getting something out of it in the end. Right. So maybe that is a strategy that we're talking about in terms of equity. We can't legislate the heart, but at the same time, we need to continue to do the work you're talking about, Esther, on the ground, but it comes down to strategy, not to the heart, but to showing that you have an interest in this. You will get a benefit out of this. 
and it's just more of a strategy in a way versus going toward the heart and hoping that someone but falls it's still for exhausting. you. It's exhausting, but because nothing in this world is 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 free. Well, nothing um, in this world is easy. Well, and as a person you, of color, you um, and I both know, and Esther the, knows, unless you're in the majority, that there's and nothing. you don't have to strategize. Your strategy is of trying course. to figure out a strategy that doesn't really bump so much with I you. I get it, and it's not that it. way with I everybody. It. And it, when, that's of why course. I'm always saying racist white people, those in positions of power. To, to, to sort of either move that needle or to allow the needle to just sort of, you know. Well, just to, just to switch, I know we've talked a lot about race, but one of the things I think is interesting also as we talk about equity, and Esther talked about this idea of the Me Too movement, the Time's Up, gender, equal, gender equity, modern versus historical issues. Are they still the same? Are they Do they mirror each other? Or are we dealing with a myriad of different issues in terms of equity? for around the issue of gender? I think it's the same. Just like, you know, the racial injustices that we see in the gender, it's, it's, it's the same, it's just a different calendar year. I think the reason why, and you know, I agree that yes, people know, you know, and are aware about the racism and sexism and misogyny and transphobia and isms and, you know, phobias all around. But we still have people who are shocked when they hear that, you know, Brocker only got six months probation for, you know, for sexually assaulting, you know, a person. And he is, you know, uh, changing the term and saying that, no, he was performing outer course. I don't know what the hell outer course is. Here in California, 172 people were murdered by police officers, right? And people are shocked every time we see a video or a photo or whatever the case might be about police officers doing, you know, inflicting these crimes, you know, against people. There needs to be a lot more like unconscious awakening that needs to happen. I think a lot of people just kind of walk around in denial. We hear like, oh, what do you mean racism? We, you know, we <sighs> voted in a black president. What do you mean racism? We Black Panther, you know, we, we watch Black Panther, you know, like that doesn't exist. And so I think there is this whole other awakening that maybe we need to think about that you have to actually put in people's faces that black lives matter. Black lives matter because look at what's happening. You know, going back to the Time's Up and the Me Too movement, you know, we have known that sexual assaults happen. And, you know, especially in these industries where power and control just dominate. Um, and this is very evident when, you know, when stories, you know, came out of the, of the Me Too and the Time's Up movement. But I think part of these movements is just, you know, again, like, shedding light and making things more visible because these were cloaked under you know toxic masculinity patriarchy shame and you know and guilt misplaced you know shame and guilt because the more often we hear that there is this power imbalance and the control that's, that's used against these you know women and men that maybe the unconscious will awaken and say oh this this is wrong mm-hmm. and the oh, I didn't know, but now I know, and I can no longer, right. you know, dis- dismiss this because it's just happening everywhere. And unfortunately, it took this movement to be born out of Hollywood. It came out of there because we used the credibility of celebrities and the influence of celebrities to say that, okay, this is, you know, this is an issue that's happening in Hollywood, but, you know, we also are aware that it happens in other places. Right, and I'm not really sure how I always feel about that, too. Because I don't like the idea, always, of uh, exalting celebrity 
and that status way up there. And then, oh, wow, now that legitimizes everything when all the foot soldiers who are not making millions and millions of dollars, you know, are going through this on a daily basis just at the water cooler. But don't you think that's the idea of, like, part of strategy? I agree with I you. That is part I of <laughs> Okay. Because... I oh, really? <laughs> I believe, I believe it's, it's, it's what we always have done. Ignore those who have no voice. Who have no representation. Okay. But don't you think yeah, that's training that. of those influencers, yes. though? Because, yes. you know, we see, you know, Common and John Legend, right? Like, those, I think, are the two. Even Jane Fonda. You right. know, a lot of people don't know that Jane Fonda, like, financially supported, you know, um, the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm, and now right. we see that she is using her voice and platform, you know, for, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and so right. forth. But part of this, I mm-hmm. think, is retraining influencers, on how to share the platform. Can you? But I don't. I, I don't. I don't. From okay. what I've seen historically, in comparisons to this issue, it just resembles all the others. Mm. It's a group that has power, has notoriety. The focus is there. Right. Those who are voiceless and marginalized mm-hmm. don't, and they're never able to grapple on to that movement right. that happens. Yeah. And then you have not only the lack of attention. You have a lack of empathy for them as well. What happens to those who are the maids mm-hmm. in Vegas? There was a study done not too long ago, the maids in Reno, mm-hmm. and some of the sexual harassment that it, they had endured. Um, those who clean our offices here at USC or the offices down here downtown, those groups of people are, have historically been left out of right. such movements as this. And... Even though John Legend and some of the other people you mentioned are doing great stuff, but they're outliers in right. comparisons to what we are seeing, the empathy, the movement, the money. It's once again a group being left out. But that's just, you know, that's how no, I... You, I agree with you, Terrence. I do. And I think that goes back all the way to Spencer and Volt and Galton and all those people trying to do away with, or certainly devalue the inferiors that they're not a part of natural selection so whatever happens to them doesn't really matter it's the sort of three-fifths human no matter what not just black but female nobles and smith talked about this whole notion that women in america i think it's like 1939 you can look it up smith 1939 somewhere in there 1941 in his writings said that women include and also negroes africans whatever we were being called back then but women were in there that they would never reach the cognitive capability of that of more than an adolescent a 13 or 14 year old so when you think about that just the historical implications that your cognitive ability as a female would never go beyond that of a 13 or 14 you can see if you look at our society and even if you look in hollywood and you see women how they were portrayed in movies i mean think about in the 20s and 30s the male protagonist could sort of slap around the woman <laughs> the whole rule steal a kiss right the, right the whole rule of thumb right you know you know that where that comes from it's just very interesting we say oh yeah that was a bad idea so let's do away with that the problem is is that the residual effects are still there. If we're talking about the 20s and 30s, we've got people running around here who were influenced by their grandfather, and arguably they are influencing their children. And we wonder why we're going around in this sort of circular motion, because we keep passing on this transgenerational dysfunction from one generation to the next. And albeit, certainly there have been strides that have been made. But I I, I find myself sometimes a, a, a bit dismayed by even saying that myself, strides have been made. Because in, the, in a patriarchy, they don't tolerate strides being made 
They just simply want what they want, and they have the power and the resources to make that happen. And anybody who gets in the way is stomped and devalued and marginalized, etc. And then when they do stand up for themselves, there's such backlash uh, that uh, many people can be harmed. It'd be one thing if it was just an individual situation, but there are children and there are friends and families and a whole social network that potentially stands to be compromised. And so people make different difficult decisions to sort of stay in the shadow and maintain the dysfunction, maintain the racism, maintain the sexism, maintain the ageism, maintain all of that. You know, and going back to the maids in Reno, I wonder, would media write about maids in Reno and the sexual assaults that, you know, that has happened to them if it wasn't for you know the spotlight that's on this issue mm, right now gotcha. well before we run out of time i want to touch on last subject how does white privilege play into this current political climate and how it's affecting progress in terms of equity you know what i thought was funny is like white privilege had its own little section that's white privilege that white privilege has its own section, you know? Like, don't you think? Like, I looked at the outline, and it's like, white privilege. Everything else is, like, shared, you know? Like, gender equity. We had to talk about every single, like, community in under gender equity. But white privilege had its own, and I was like, that is white privilege. I mean, right? But if we want to talk about inclusion and diversity, I also do want to talk about white women and their role, you know, in the the current administration that we have. I mean, he literally said, you know, grab him by the pussy. And I was shocked, you know, when we looked at, like, literally shocked when I saw the numbers of, you know, white women voting for this man. Because race almost trumps everything. That's what I'm saying, right? Like, so when I saw, you know, white... Literally, Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) But white, I mean, white privilege is like dominates i think a lot of the structures that we have in place like we when we talk about racism when we talk about misogyny sexism you have to add in the white privilege in there because to me when looking at that the question yes the first visualization that came to my mind was this massive lynch mob at night going into the white house pulling obama out looking at the headlines if the headlines were similar white porn star grab him by the you know what Mm -hmm. If he talked about instead of African countries, he mentioned, I don't know, Sweden. From downplaying a gold star family to putting down John McCain. In my mind, it's the first thing that came to me. I was on the plane and I saw this lynch mob pulling Obama out, ready to hang him. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is true right privilege. That you can get on the world stage, embarrass yourself, your country, say the most egregious things Mm -hmm. in terms of equity about women, about transgendered, um, about people of color. Everyone and except no for white one, supremacists. And Nazis. no one winks. Yeah. No one no one gasps except mm-hmm. for us, the same people, the other. We're the only one gasping. And that is the ultimate example to me of white privilege. Yeah. I, I always quote Peggy McIntosh. She was a big scholar in the 80s. And she, I think everybody under the sound of our voices need to read Unpacking the Knapsack of White Privilege, Peggy McIntosh. And she is a white female. So for all you listeners out there think, oh my God, it's going to be somebody like Angela Davis. No, she's a white woman. And she has the foresight to be honest. Not everybody's heart is sullied with the level of racism and inappropriate sexism. For instance, she says there are like 46 examples of white privilege. Again, this is a white woman. This is not a black person, a Hispanic person, a transgendered person. This is a white 
I'm assuming heterosexual woman. Because maybe that's heterosexist for me to assume she's heterosexual. Yes. Okay, so we all have work to do. Uh, anyway, number 21. I am never asked to speak for all the people of my racial group. If you are a lesbian or a gay person in a room full of a bunch of people who arguably are heterosexual, when they have a gay question or a lesbian question, they might turn to you. That's a problem. If you are black, I can promise you they're going to turn to you. If you are Hispanic, they're going to turn to you. Number 24, she says, for instance, I can be pretty sure that if I am asked to talk to the person in charge, I will be facing a person of my own race. But if you think about it, this whole idea of privilege is this idea of people who benefit from unearned and largely unacknowledged advantages, even when those advantages aren't discriminatory. That's really important to remember. Uh, it's been part of the history and just the fabric of America. W.E.B. Du Bois talked about this whole notion of the psychological wage, things of that nature in the civil rights era. And then Peggy McIntosh came along and brought up this whole notion of white privilege and white male privilege and really started to write about it in the 80s and really brought it into the forefront. And so I think it's really important for people to remember that this whole notion of white privilege really stems out of white folks who chose to stay woke. Do people still stay woke? Yeah, they still I say woke. Like Gabe is a little. That's what I'm saying. You know, I actually, yeah, he's, I was like, woke. I think it's kind of an old term. You know? Oh my bad. Gabe, okay. Gabe is. Yeah, he still says chilling. <laughs> I do. I do want to put a disclaimer out there because when we say privilege, people automatically assume like you have to be super rich or whatever, right. right? That's so, that's uh-huh. a misnomer. Great. Yes. Right. Glad and, you said that. Uh huh. Because I, you know, when I talk about you know white privilege they're like well i grew up really poor Mm -hmm. you know i didn't have xyz but i'm like but you can go into a building and no one's going to call the cops on you right right you can be standing in front of your own damn house and no one's going to say that there's a prowler right or you could be shot in an urban community and know that there's going to be a full investigation investigation. full media coverage a reward dubois talked about in his psychological wage uh, this whole notion that poor whites were allowed to feel superior to blacks just by virtue of white skin. So I think that's critical. Well, I would like to say thanks to Gabe and Esther for being here today, bringing a heightened perspective to this issue of equity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. We also have Elvis. And <laughs> Elvis is in the Elvis house. Elvis is in the house. Who stole... From black people. Uh, yes. Okay. okay, don't even get me started. All right, that's another that's another podcast. That's <laughs> that's uh that's part of the reparations but at part least three. He admitted it. That's part of reparations part three. <laughs> reparations, amends, and amendments. I would like uh, the, to end it all. I would like to say that this whole misuse and misunderstanding of this term equity has helped to support institutional oppression affecting the marginalized. For those out there in podcast land, those who are on the hunt for true social justice. We have to remember that. We also have to remember the words of John Rawls when he noted that the natural distribution is neither just nor unjust, nor is it unjust that persons unborn into society at some particular position. These are simply natural factors. What is just and unjust is the way that our institutions deal with these facts. So let's get out there. Let's do something. As I always say, don't talk about it, be about it. If you have any questions for our guests on our show or just want to talk further about the issue of equity, we'd love to hear from you at listenuppeople at usc.edu and find extended versions of this and all of our episodes at dworkpec.usc.edu slash listenup. Thank you very much for listening. I'm